0: all aware of that. And when we think of Jesus' teaching, maybe we think of his parables before we think of anything else. In fact, about a third of all of his teachings are in the form of parables. It depends somewhat on how you actually count that as to how many there are, uh, because there's, some are very clear parables and some are little short figures of speech that there's disagreement about whether this is a parable or not some of Jesus' best-remembered sayings, his best-remembered teachings come to us from the parables. If we were in a Bible class setting, I think it would be good for us to really drill in on this, talk a lot about the background of parables, talk a lot about their nature and the history of this sort of teaching method and exactly how he employs it. I don't think that's the best thing for, for this sort of format. But I do think, sort of as an introduction, it's good for us to ask a few questions and to have some basic awareness of what a parable is. That's really the first question. What is a parable? Why did Jesus teach in parables? What are the parables all about? What's the point of them? And then how do we interpret the parables? So first of all, what is a parable? The word parable is just a transliteration of the Greek word. It's a compound word, parbole. And that literally means to throw or to cast or to place something alongside something else. So we're placing one thing alongside another thing. Uh, Vine's expository dictionary defines it this way. It signifies a placing of one thing beside another with a view to comparison. Here's Warren Wiersbe's definition. He describes a parable as a story that puts the known next to the unknown, for the purpose of teaching. Or there's that good old shorthand definition that a lot of us probably grew up hearing. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's a good concise way of understanding what a parable is all about. Jesus' parables are usually stories drawn from nature, drawn from human circumstances, drawn from just everyday life through these common scenes. Sometimes they'll have a a twist in them that makes them somewhat subversive that's a little bit shocking, but spiritual lessons are are made through those comparisons. Why did Jesus teach in parables? That's the second big question. And our text was read a few moments ago, fortunately, the disciples asked that very same question and Jesus gave them an answer. It's in the context of the parable that we're going to look at this evening, but Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples asked him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he pulls from a prophecy of Isaiah and says it's fulfilled about this generation. What this points out to us is that Jesus taught in parables for two reasons. These went hand in hand, to conceal and to reveal. Those purposes were complementary and it depended on the audience. And a lot of this actually has to do with the parable we're going to look at in a few moments tonight. But it's because of the hardness of many of the hearts of the people in his audience that he taught this way. The disciples were blessed to learn the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven because they had receptive hearts. They wanted to learn more. They wanted to dig in and find out what this was all about. This is a way for Jesus to separate the real truth seekers from those curiosity seekers. You know, the people who were just following Jesus because of the spectacle, because of the extravaganza, because of the loaves and the fishes those who were turned off by what he had to say could simply be dismissed. They could go their own way. The other side of that, concealing it from those hard-hearted ones, it's to reveal the truth to those who really desired to learn and to dig in and to ask him about it, just like the apostles do here. This is in the context of a parable that he told, the parable of the sower. And they ask him, what's this all about? Why do you teach in parables? And of course, this is one of the two parables that Jesus gives an explicit interpretation of. He gives us the answer key here, tells us what he's talking about. And so if we really are seeking after the truth, we'll dig into these and we can learn more about these mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus calls them. Which brings us to that third question, what are the parables all about? And primarily they have to do with the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In fact, many of the parables, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, are introduced that way. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then there's the parable that's told. That's probably not surprising when we consider that that was the theme of Jesus' preaching. He went out after John baptized him and his message is, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, it's breaking in. It's there in his ministry. And so the parables were an attempt to expound on that, to explain what the kingdom of God is. They tell us about the nature of the king, about the nature of his rule, about the nature of the people her citizens of that kingdom. The last thing we need to keep in mind, just big picture introduction, when we look at the parables, whether it's in this series of lessons or just in our own studies, when we interpret a parable, there are two opposite extremes in interpretation that we need to avoid one is seeking to find some sort of spiritual significance in each and every minute detail in a parable the parables aren't allegories But this goes back even to ancient times you know jesus is teaching these in a in a jewish context he wasn't the first person to use parables he just used them more extensively and he used them better but many of the rabbis taught this way and so jesus taught in this jewish context in a way that was familiar to his audience but once we get out in the greco-roman world it becomes divorced from its context and the second, the third, the fourth centuries, many of these early Christians started interpreting these allegorically. And it only got worse in the Middle Ages when we start reading meaning into every little detail of a parable. So, just for example, medieval theologians, when they would expound on the story of the prodigal son, uh, the leftover hog slop there that the prodigal is using, that is representative of evil thoughts. The ring that the Father gives him, that represents the Trinity, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, The shoes that are put on his feet, well, that represents the gospel because, you know, the shoes, the preparation of the gospel piece, so on and so forth. No. (laughs) The ring's just a ring. The shoes are just shoes. They're just illustrating the story. They're, They're telling it. They're bringing this narrative here to life. So we have to remember what a parable is, placing one thing beside another, telling this story to make a comparison, we need to keep the big picture, main idea point in mind. The other extreme to avoid is to think that each parable has one and only one point. Now, a lot of them do only have one point, but as sort of a reaction to all of that allegorical interpretation of parables, especially in the 19th century, German scholars begin this they started to emphasize that there's only one point to every parable and this came to be just Accepted wisdom and yet we look at some of them and well, there's More than one point a good example again is the story of the prodigal son You have three characters there and they all have something to tell us whether it's the prodigal or whether it's the older brother or whether it's the father There's more than one point there and so some have suggested today that it's better to look at these through the lens of the characters in each story. Those that have one character, there tends to be just one point. Those that like the prodigal son have three characters, well, there tends to be three points. Uh, You know, we see things there from the standpoint of the sinner who's gone far away, of the one who outwardly appeared to be religious and yet had wandered away on his own, was ungrateful, didn't really love his Lord. And then we see it from the standpoint of the loving father who's there waiting and eager to welcome back those who repent. So that's two extremes to keep in mind there. Even if we shouldn't read meaning into every single detail of a parable, we need to make sure that we tease out everything that's there. So with all those general comments out of the way, the rest of our time tonight, I want us to look here in Matthew chapter 13 at the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. This is one of the first parables of Jesus that we have recorded and this is really the parable of parables in a sense. It explains why he uses parables. It's the key to, to unlocking all the rest of them. So I think it's a good place for us to begin. And in Matthew 13 in verse number 9 we actually read the, the climax there to his telling of it. He who has ears let him hear. That's the key to keep in mind for understanding this parable. We usually refer to this as the parable of the sower. I refer to it that way already, and I'm going to continue to refer to it that way. But really, when you read this closely, that's the traditional name for it, but that's not really the best name for this parable. Because it's not really about the sower, the one who's scattering the seed. And it's not really about the seed that's being planted. It's about the soils. Really, the parable of the soils is a better way to think about this message. The emphasis is on the different terrain on which this seed falls because you have the same sower and you have the same seed that's planted. But not every soil produces the same type of crop. And the only difference here is in the quality of the respective soils. That's what the focus is on in this story. So Jesus is bringing out the importance of this right kind of hearing. He who has ears, let him hear. It doesn't matter matter how polished or how appealing the speaker is. It doesn't matter how truthful the message is. You can preach the gospel in the most effective way possible. But if the heart of the hearer isn't right, it's not going to do any good. It's not going to take root. It's not going to have any effect. That's why Jesus issues this warning. He who has ears, let him hear. Or a little bit later in the same context. Take care. Take heed. How you hear. See, Jesus saw four types of of hearers in that audience that day. There were his opponents, for one thing, those Jewish leaders, the ones who were always hostile to him. They were completely resistant to his message. Then there were those who were sometimes just referred to as the crowds or the multitude, sometimes referred to as the disciples, but these are those sorts of, of hangers-on. The ones who would follow Jesus when it was easy, but We know at other points, John chapter 6, for example, he delivers some hard teachings, and most of them turn away. They don't want to follow him anymore. It's not what I signed up for. A third category might be Judas himself. He sort of belongs to this own category of his own. He followed Jesus much longer than those others. He didn't turn away, and yet, in the end, he became disillusioned. Jesus wasn't what he thought he was going to be, and so he turned on him. But then finally there are those 11 remaining faithful apostles. And so when Jesus tells this story, he probably has those four groups of people that we know he frequently encounters in the gospel records in mind. And this parable continues to be relevant for us, not only because it's a good introduction and gives us the key to parables in general, but what I suggest is anytime the gospels preach, an audience like tonight, an audience especially like on a Sunday morning, we typically find those same four types of people out there to listen. So the story is recorded here, Matthew 13. The parallel is in Mark chapter 4, also in Luke chapter 8. But we're going to read Matthew's account. And I I want to read the parable itself, and then we'll read Jesus' interpretation, and then we'll talk briefly about it. Matthew 13, verse number 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the lake and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying a sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil but when the sun rose they were scorched and since they had no root they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Skip down to verse 18, and Jesus gives us the meaning of this parable. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So in our time remaining, let's briefly walk our way through these different soils and talk about them. First of all, there's that wayside path. The message is wasted on these people. They may have heard it with their minds wandering in every which direction. They may have heard it with their lips curled in scorn, going away from the church service, grumbling about the fact that that preacher's a lunatic. They may have heard it by proxy what I mean by that is hearing and nodding along and saying to themselves well I sure wish so-and-so was here this is a message they really need but not taking it to heart for themselves but in any case whatever their particular situation the common denominator for all of these is that they went away and the message had no effect on them they didn't see that it applied to them in any way it didn't take root them they didn't respond to it at all they were as unmoved as if they'd never been there and they hadn't been listening at all why is it that these people fail to respond one reason the hardness of their hearts they'd allowed their hearts to become hardened just like that wayside soil what we're talking about here are the the footpaths that went in between each field that as you're walking over day after day, it becomes compacted. There's nothing wrong with the soil in itself and its natural state, but over time it just becomes so worn down that nothing can take root in it. That wayside soil didn't lack fertility, but it had been so beaten down and it was so hard that that seed had no chance to take root. And that's what's wrong with people who have hearts like this. They've hardened them. They've become calloused, calcified over time. What is it that causes that hardness of heart? In some cases, it could be some sort of spiritual crisis that caused someone to become that way. Uh, We probably all know people who were even raised in Christian homes, but because of something that happened somewhere along the way, they have absolutely no interest in the gospel. It could be that. But more often than not, it results from a long process of disobedience. Just like that soil that gets compacted over time. As people are presented with the truth of the gospel, day in, day out, week after week, year after year, and they continue to resist it, their hearts become hardened. They become callous to it. One old preacher called this becoming gospel hardened. That's what happens. There's a real danger here of facing the gospel on a regular basis and just not taking it seriously, thinking that it doesn't apply to us in any way. That's why Jesus makes this warning. Take heed how you hear Then there's that second group, that of the the rocky soil. I've I've called these the first responders because these are the ones who make that immediate response to the message. Man, as soon as the sermon's over, they're they're streaming there down the aisles while the invitation song is sung and they they grab the preacher's hand and they say what a powerful effect it had upon them and they they resolve to go and to, to make changes. They hear the word and they've responded and they say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go all of this enthusiasm but before long they fall away that enthusiasm dies what was their problem? it's not because they responded too quickly there's no such thing as responding to the gospel too quickly but the problem is they were just as quick to quit as they were to begin it never really took root it was always shallow and superficial. It was always a thing there just beneath the surface. They followed their emotions instead of acting with any sort of deep-rooted conviction and faith. Now, maybe that wasn't the sole reason for their failure. You know, Jesus says, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. There was some real opposition. There were some real difficulties. Yeah, that's probably true. But they didn't have to be fatal difficulties. What is it that caused that seed planted on the rocky ground to fail? It's the sun. It scorched it, it burned it up. But sun isn't inherently bad for wheat, is it? No. In fact, it's essential for it to grow. And that same sun that was shining on the crop in the rocky ground was shining on that crop in the good soil. What was the difference between those two? The way they responded. That shallow soil, they're not the victim of irresistible circumstances. It's not a matter of there being things that are just out of their control they yielded to circumstances instead of enduring, instead of persevering in the midst of that trouble that actually could have strengthened them if they'd persisted. There are also those, the third category, who heard the message here, but their response before long ceased to be wholehearted if it ever was wholehearted to begin with. The seed sprang up and it grew, but the problem was that thorns also sprang up in that same ground. Now that shows us there that there was nothing wrong with the soil. It wasn't lacking in fertility. If it could handle a a crop of thorns, it could handle a crop of wheat too. But the problem is that none of us are capable of serving two masters. We can't grow these two crops side by side. We can't uh, raise a crop of wheat and harvest a bunch of thorns at the same time because it allows what's best in us to be choked to death. And if this was a danger in jesus day i think this is maybe even more of a danger in our day it's so easy for us to allow the thorns to choke what's important out in our lives after all what are thorns jesus mentions a few things here specifically three things that crowd out the wheat. Two here in Matthew. There's one other mentioned in Mark and in Luke. But you notice here he says one is money. Another he mentions is pleasure. Another he mentions is worry or anxiety. Being concerned about the cares of the world. You see when we think about thorns we think about things crushing the word. We usually think of of vicious sins things that are horrible things that are evil and yeah, we may struggle with those I don't know in your situation, but I suggest that for for most of us who are trying to live Christian lives that that's not the type of thing That we struggle with But things like worry Things like money things like the pursuit of, of pleasure We might struggle with those things and of course those aren't the only thorns. That's not exhaustive the point is that that anything that might be good in and of itself but if we allow it to take over our lives, if we allow it to have first place instead of devoting our hearts completely to serving God that's a thorn. Being busy is a good thing but you can be too busy and when you're so busy that you don't give priority to, to worship, to study, to prayer To go and and, and serving others is a way of serving the Lord. That means that our priorities are out of alignment. And those thorns are in danger of choking out the crop that God wants us to produce. But then, fourth and finally, there's that good soil, the fruitful here. Why was this soil fruitful? it wasn't because of any skill on the part of the sower he threw the seed out on that soil just like he did on the rest it wasn't because they had any sort of greater capacity to to get the seed in the first place they were fruitful because they received the message they took it in they internalized it they received it into a a good and an honest heart they had an open mind they were eager in seeking after the truth we can imagine that they were like those in Berea that are spoken of in Acts they they searched the scriptures to see if those things were so and so to go back to the idea of being in a a modern worship service this is the type of person who goes in and and with the mindset of Lord if you have some message to deliver to me today I want to hear it I want to respond to it I want to take it into my life and make changes if I need to they didn't demand that that message be popular or that it be easy, they yielded themselves up to submit to whatever it was that was God's will. They heard that message and they kept it. How did they keep it? Not by writing it down in a book, not by committing it to memory, but by going out and living it, producing fruit. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30, they put it into practice. When we put our faith into practice, it becomes fuller, deeper, richer, more meaningful. It really takes root for us in the way that the Lord wants it to. But if we fail to put it into practice, that really says that we don't truly believe it. this is one of those parables that most of us here tonight are familiar with and its message is pretty straightforward since unlike so many of the others Jesus actually tells us what it's all about we might find some of these a little bit harder slogging as we go along but what we need to take home with us tonight obviously the clearest thing we all want to make sure we're that fourth type of soil right we know this of course we want to make sure that we're the good soil, the productive soil that's, that's bearing this good fruit. And that doesn't mean that we have to be exceptional Christians in any way. I think that's why Jesus talks about this uh, production here. Some yields a hundredfold. That's stupendous. But some yields 60, 30-fold. It's it's relatively ordinary. It's productive. But it's, it's nothing that causes us to, to turn our heads there in shock. And maybe you're here tonight and you're in that category. And since you're here tonight, I can say pretty safely, you're not in that first category. You don't have your heart completely hardened. You're not hostile to the gospel. People like that don't generally show up for a Sunday evening service. But what I'm more concerned about for all of us are those second and third categories. Those in the middle. Because we might find ourselves there. That seed that fell on the rocky ground withered when it found itself in trouble. Now, in America, we don't really face persecution because of Christianity. But, you know, in a lot of parts of the world, they do today. There are some countries where you can be killed for being a Christian. Others where you can be jailed. Others where you just have to do it in secret because the government frowns at least publicly upon it. I don't know if you know this or not, but more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in all the first 19 centuries of Christianity combined. More people were killed for the faith than in those first 19 centuries combined because we're very efficient at killing these days. Now, fortunately, I don't think that we'll ever face, God willing, I I don't anticipate us ever facing that sort of persecution in our country. But I will say that as we move into an increasingly post-Christian society, we're going to face more pressure. It's going to be increasingly unpopular in some quarters to be a Christian. How are we going to stand up to that sort of societal pressure? Are we going to be able to, to boldly stand up for Christ? Or is our soil shallow when the trouble comes? That third category, we already talked about it, where, where life and where wealth choke it out. I think this is perhaps a a greater danger for those of us who are in the the church in America. Where do our priorities lie? Are we focused on the things of, of this world, on wealth, on our jobs, on our families, or are we focused on the things that are eternally important? You see, in the end, even though Jesus mentions four different categories of hearers, and we might even be able to come up with others, ultimately there are really only two categories of responses that you can make to the gospel. Those who receive it, and those who reject it. Think of what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Great Divorce. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. can't be faithful Christians if we're in that second or that third category of soils and those are the ones that we're probably in more danger of falling into we have to be the good soil that's productive and that bears fruit what kind of soil are you how do you hear if you're subject to the Lord's invitation this evening, take the opportunity to come now while we stand, while we sing. I heard an old story how a Savior came from glory how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wreck like me I heard a